I was really struck by the power of music to be calming and reassuring. This lady was in her last stages or final phase of life. I don't know if people have ever seen someone dying, but sometimes it can be quite strugglesome, as if they're clinging on to the last moments of life. People are struggling to get air in, and that sound itself I certainly find very distressing. But this lady was in tranquility, not rasping or gasping. We're hearing the music of John Dowland, gently lilting, with a regular rhythm and flowing harmony. It's not dissonant, it's not discordant, but it has a momentum and a quiet flavour. Hearing is the last sense to go, and she wasn't responding with speech, she wasn't opening her eyes, but she's not struggling. I feel it was the music that was actually ushering her out of this life because her breathing was in time to that music. That really was evidence for me that someone could hear and could still benefit from music even when almost every other aspect of their body had shut down. And because there was no struggle, no resistance, you had the sense that it was all okay and that it was calm. It's reassuring to those around because they know even though she seems to be unconscious, she can in fact hear their voices. She can hear the prayers and will know that she's in safe hands and hopeful. That's what we might call a good death. The music we love in life can accompany us into death, and with it, we can die well. I'm James Carlton. It's God forbid. Wow, music to die for. Hello, welcome to God Forbid. And what a story that is told by Dr. Kirsty Beilharts. She's a former professor of music, an internationally acclaimed composer. Her work performed by orchestras around the world. Though perhaps her most important accolade is the profound connection she makes every day using music with people who are dying or experiencing profound dementia. Kirsty Beilharts, welcome. Thank you. Well, what a job you have, Director of Music Engagement at Hammond Care. Tenderness, tears, laughter, humanity, humility in the job description? Yes, they are actually. It actually feels important to be involved in helping people to age well and to die well. The reward is seeing those people being able to, to be happy themselves and also to make relatives and friends appreciate them for who they are at that moment. Well, we're going to hear about your amazing work with the music, healing, living well and dying well. It's your burning issue of the day. Um, but you've also got a personal religious story to tell. <laughs> yes. Well, there's an aspect, of course, of one's own spiritual beliefs or inner life that I think are quite personal. So, to be honest, it's the, the first time I've really discussed it so publicly in front of, you know, national radio. It's quite exposing. I did actually have a Christian school experience and upbringing. But when I went to university, I was studying music. And as an undergraduate, one of the aspects of that is studying a lot of philosophy, particularly European philosophy, uh, the Germans who influenced music so much, Hegel and Kant and Schopenhauer, uh, Heidegger. And I guess I was at that time of rebellion in my life when it suited me quite well to go off the rails there and to explore that kind of 
secular thought and the relationship of independent thinking. And I think it probably is independence and autonomy, freedom from control that I might have been responding to. Uh, And then when I was studying my postdoc in Europe, I was studying music theatre, of all things, with Nicola Lefanu at the University of York. And I met a few Buddhists in London. One thing that struck me about them was how unevangelical they were and how Buddhists weren't at all interested in proselytizing. They actually challenged you to challenge the Buddha. There was this idea that any spiritual theories you arrived at needed to be questioned and interrogated. And that really appealed to my sort of stubborn, autonomous intellect at the time. So I discovered Buddhism and uh, practiced that for around 20 years, looked at both Japanese Zen Buddhism as well as uh, Tibetan Buddhism. But in the end, I've returned to Christianity. We'll get to that later. Christian Kundo is our other guest on the panel. He's a philosophy enthusiast. He's the coach of the mighty Auburn Penrith Giants, the women's AFL team, and a doctor trainee in New South Wales hospitals. Christian Kundo, welcome to the panel. Welcome to God Forbid. Thanks for having me, James. Very happy to be here. You have a conversion story too. Yes, I do. Rather different in that I had a mixed family growing up. So, uh, Christian uh, and? And Jewish. Um, you know, my father's family come from Europe and were able to uh, escape, my grandparents anyway. Your grandfather was the sole survivor of his family, that's, all the rest murdered by the Nazis. That's right, yes. But, I mean, even they were pretty mixed in their uh, religiosity. My grandfather was rather religious, my grandmother not at all, uh, and my father not even remotely religious. Having that mixed religious upbringing in what at the time was, I guess, a reasonably isolated part of the world on the central coast of New South Wales growing up, I uh, was constantly, I guess, evaluating what the value of religion was, what it could give to me and I guess give to my friends and funnily enough, I guess, sort of stumbled into Islam. Now, I mean, the, the more astute among the listeners will know, well, it's actually not miles from Judaism and in fact probably helps to reconcile the differences between Judaism and Christianity. So in some ways it may be sort of logical, but it's a rarer story. You know, someone coming from a, what is it, effectively an Anglo background, taking on this uh, very Middle Eastern religion. How old were you when you became a Muslim? 18. What did your family make of it? Your Jewish family, your Christian family? (laughs) Well, my grandparents are already deceased by that time, so I didn't have to have the conversation with them. You would have killed Uh, them. Yeah, probably. Um, So thankfully I was saved from that. But look, I mean, it it took my mother a very long time, I guess, to come around. Was that because of her love of Christianity or her fear of Islam? uh, I think more the latter than the former. And I can understand that, given representations of Muslims in the media and Islam, it's uh, it's pretty fair that most people have that fear. Well, it just so happens that that is your burning issue for the program, the representation of Islam in the media. So I hope mum's listening. <laughs> I'll be sure that she does. <laughs> I'm curious, how do you stumble into Islam on the central coast? Is it something that you can do easily? Well, all of the Islamic material that I I received from Muslims actually came from a Yahoo search back in the day. Um, You know, uh, searching on the internet as you try to become a Muslim is not the safest practice. Well, I think I'm very fortunate in that I was doing this stuff 12 years ago and not today, because certainly uh, it's far more dangerous today, that's for sure. If you were an 18-year-old now with an impressionable mind and you stumbled upon 
some ISIS-style recruiter, what would have been the response? I mean, me personally, I doubt it, but I can see how one who hasn't got the most solid formulation of who they are would very easily be influenced, yeah. There's a lot that's enticing about the ideology that they present. I had a solid understanding of the things that wouldn't work for me. The idea of isolating oneself from the mainstream community was a red line. Uh, any view that held bigotry toward outsiders, etc., were red lines. Kirsty Beilhart's your conversion experience, or at least your second one, Buddhism no longer satisfied you? I think there'd been a transition for a few years when I started to recognise that Buddhism is actually very difficult. If you have a restless mind like I do... But isn't that what Buddhism is for, to make it more relaxed and comfortable? Exactly, but if, if you are someone like me that doesn't find meditation very easy, you can struggle with some of the practices. And I also think that was long enough to realise that it's all about the journey, not the destination, and it's all about the process. And when even the Dalai Lama himself professes not to have achieved enlightenment yet, that sort of left me realising I'm, you know, millennia off getting anywhere. Not to say that the process wasn't extremely helpful. Um, Buddhists are some of the most compassionate and loving and hardworking people who I know. No regrets? No regrets, no. And I learned a lot through doing that. And I still have a great respect for the cultures, traditional music, things that are so integrated with the actual practice of spirituality. So you found Christianity, well, you returned to Christianity. Why did that give you the peace you were looking for? I think there's something very remarkable about Christianity that makes it different from any kind of faith by works. Now, the downside of that, for those of us who are not so good at living a perfect life or who at least recognise our flawed nature, we'll find something different in Christianity which offers an ongoing and future relationship with God, not based on your own skill set or autonomy or abilities. It's based on the gift of the work that Jesus has already done, dying on the cross. Are you the only sinner in Christianity or are there others? No, no. Actually, we're all sinners, I hate to tell you. All? Well, yeah, it's a big club. But I suppose what is actually really countercultural is the idea that you can't fix things yourself. I think particularly in a fairly affluent society that's comfortable like we live in, we have become very self-sufficient on the whole. And Christianity is actually advocating something very different where you're able to relinquish your own self-control and rely on someone else. So that's great relief if you realise that you actually aren't capable in your humanness and your fallenness and your brokenness of perhaps fixing your own life. Now, what about this terrible dilemma that you face? As a Christian, you're attracted to church, but as an outstanding musician, you're repelled by the music that's in it, the low-quality versions anyway. There's some terrible music Did in I churches. Say that? No, I'm just making an assumption. You're stirring. But, you know, <laughs> well, you're not going to disagree with me that some churches play really awful music. Some churches, some pubs, some music yeah, yeah. shows, some amateur orchestras. No, it, yeah, there's lots exactly. of bad music in the world, that's not, for sure. But you don't go to the pubs with bad music, but as a Christian, yeah, you right. want to go to church. I'm very lucky. I have a church that has good music and that actually possibly influences my church choice. There you go. It shouldn't. <laughs> now, I think what's very interesting is actually the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, have absolutely plentiful calls to 
commune with each other and commune with God through the use of music, new songs and creating music and celebrating and worshipping and giving thanks and using music as a vehicle to do that. As was famously said by Kevin Bacon in Footloose. Uh, well, you know, he wasn't original then, was he? <laughs> <laughs> now, Christian, when you turn up at mosque for Friday prayers, you see a friend sees you and yells out, hey, Christian, mm-hmm. what happens then? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, obviously having a, a name that is uh, synonymous with another religion makes it a bit difficult for a lot of the, especially the older Muslims from non-English-speaking backgrounds. So uh, we chose a name for me that was sort of linked to what the meaning of me being given the name Christian was initially, uh, but was also more suitable for Muslims, and that's Abdullah, which, uh, as you know, means servant of God. Now, converting to Islam can have its complications, even if your name isn't Christian. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, Lee, what kind of Islam are you converting to question? Mm -hmm. Have a listen to the young African-American woman, Travina Springer. Yes, I'm a Muslim, a real live one. And people are like, but what kind of Muslim are you? Are you like, Muslim, Muslim? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm like regular, like as seen on TV. <laughs> that kind of Muslim, but not the angry one. Come on, I'm not angry. Come on, look at my face. But the thing is, because I was a convert, I had to tell my parents, right? Like, okay. So mom and dad, I have, I have something important to tell you. My dad goes, you're a lesbian, right? <laughs> Nita, I knew it, right? She a little, I told you, right? I want my $20. No, daddy, that's not it. Seriously? No, um, so uh, I was like, mom and dad, um, I'm, I'm a Muslim. Okay, does that mean you gonna wear the thing? It's like, that's all you're worried about? You know, my parents, they're pretty supportive, but they show me that they're still uh, Fox News influenced by that. Um, on the day of the Boston Marathon, like my dad calls me, he's like, Trevina, Did you hear about what happened in Boston today? I said, no, Daddy, what happened? There was a bombing at the marathon. I said, oh my God, Daddy, that's terrible. Trevina, do you know anything about this? (laughs) Really? You ain't get a memo or nothing. No, no, Daddy. Stand up, Trevina Springer. Christian Kunda, did that happen in your family? (laughs) I wouldn't say that the conversation was that pleasant. I had a very limited relationship with my mother probably for a couple of years, you know, immediately after. Because of Uh, your conversion to Islam? Yes, yeah. But uh, it's become fantastic since then. And and I'm very thankful that my experience has been in Australia where, you know, for the bulk of my time being a Muslim, we hadn't had any, anything like what, you know, the comedian referred to at Boston and, and, and that sort of stuff where I guess it would become easier for the non-Muslim family to become very concerned about what's going on. Had I, say, converted a couple of months before the Lint Cafe siege, well, then I imagine that I would have had far greater difficulty than I did as it was. You also have a different experience of Islam than many Muslims because you don't wear kufi, the Muslim cap, and uh, you don't have a beard and, mm-hmm. um, and you're white. You are not visibly Muslim. Mm-hmm. Is that by design? Or? Oh, I mean, I don't have a beard at present, but that's a four-day thing. If you had have seen me two days ago, well, then I would have. Uh, but you could have looked like a hipster. Well, that's right. Yeah, true. And, and as for uh, wearing a, a hat, well, I mean, I do at times where it's appropriate. I question the the appropriateness of it in public spaces where it's it's not relevant. But certainly, I mean, I have it a lot easier to say than my 
you know, wife who is olive skin, wears a headscarf. I mean, I can sort of slip in and out incognito and it will only be when I get invited to, you know, Sunday sippers after a football match that then I have to say, oh, actually, I don't drink alcohol and this is the reason that I don't. Do you get the what kind of Muslim are you question when you say that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, there's a lot of shock. There's a lot of shock around the idea that, I mean, first of all, someone can be articulate uh, in English and be Muslim. You know, one day I, I, I was uh, buying... I have uh, to say, you've uh, taken on the language very well. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, you know, I, I was returning uh, home from the mosque one day via a Bilo supermarket. The woman at the checkout suddenly became convinced that I couldn't speak English. I was wearing an abaya and a, and a hat and had a beard. And I mean, she was very polite about it, but she genuinely believed that I couldn't speak English. And such was the conviction of her belief that, uh, that I couldn't convince her. Recitation of Shakespeare <laughs> didn't change her mind. That may have made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, look, I have a far more comfortable experience than most. Well, tell me sure. what happens to your wife. Who wears hijab? Oh, we've had incidents where she's been yelled at, ridiculed in shopping centres where she's been intimidated and with our children as well, you know, who are quite young. It's disappointing to see the cowardice that will be exhibited by some people toward a woman with infants uh, and it happens reasonably regularly. And she doesn't want to just throw the hijab away because of that? No, no. And in fact, and look, and we've had that discussion. Uh, I've asked her a few times, well, wouldn't it just be easier? And then she said, well, no. Because, you know, the whole objective for us of religion is about purifying your intention and having the, the right framework at the start. And so if your intention is to avoid even sort of moderate suffering in avoiding a religious instruction, well, then you haven't got it, got it right at all. And, you know, all of our stories, and especially the stories of the patriarchs, refer repeatedly to suffering that, that has been experienced for the greater good. You know, it's funny that we talk about sort of a 20-year journey uh, in and out of Buddhism, and, and we know that, you know, the story is the children of Israel were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And uh, I saw a meme recently that made light of this and said that, you know, it was showing on Google Maps that you can walk from Cairo to Israel in six days. Um, and, you know, so 40 years you know, Moses clearly got it wrong, but um, the more traditional amongst us will know that there's a Jewish tradition that says that the reason why that happened was because it took 40 years to get the Egypt out of the Jews. And, you know, so that suffering and that journey is, uh, you know, is one that we're all on. If we just want to constantly take, I guess, the easy road out, well, certainly from our perspective, we haven't got it right.